Hi everyone, today I have Matt Ram with me. Um, he's somebody who has spent, I think it's 42 years as an underwriter extraordinaire in our industry. Hi Matt. Hi Catherine, thanks for having me. Oh, it's lovely to have you here. Matt's going to be joining me to discuss how underwriting's changed throughout his career and also chat about the claims process, which is something that we've not really covered too much on the podcast before. So this is the Practical Protection Podcast. So, Matt, uh, Christmas is quickly approaching. Are you all set and prepared? It's absolutely thrown me that it's next week, I have to say, when I realised early today. Oh, my goodness, it's not, is it? It is. It's next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I've just given you my answer. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, to, 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 be, uh, to be truthful, um, we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty much there. Um, so, so thank you for asking. The, the tree is up at long last. We didn't, uh, we didn't uh, put it up early. Really, it's just myself and um, my wife, obviously, Teresa, and my uh, my two children, who are now 26 and 21. So um, it's it's not kind of woken up at six o'clock in the morning type time anymore. Yeah. It's in, it's in fact, quite difficult to get them out of bed. So, <laughs> so, so there you go. I was going to say, I kind of long for those days, but I also don't long for those days because obviously I've got three young children and nine, six and three. And so I will be woken very early. And it's that kind of thing as well of trying to, while well, some of the way trying to wake up one while the other ones rush downstairs, it's trying to barricade the door to the room with a present so that the <laughs> first one can't just run in and start ripping all the paper off. Oh, but, um, those were the days. I was going to say, I look forward to the sleeping, but I know I'll also miss them, that kind of energetic kind of um, enjoyment that they have at that age. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> absolutely. But, um, so we're on to, because this is the last season, uh, well, last episode, sorry, of season two. We're starting season three in 2021. And so we're going to have what is now going to be the last Truth or Life feature on the podcast. And that's where the people from the previous episode have turned around and said something. And you have to kind of figure out if it was a truth or a lie, what they're saying or what I'm saying. So last time um, we had Paul and Di from Winston's Wish. And what we said was, is that I said that my favorite thing about Christmas was carol singers. Paul said his favourite thing was the Christmas party and Di said her favourite thing was chestnuts roasting on an open fire. So I'll give you just a little bit to think about who do you think was, it's probably easy to think of who was, who was lying out of all of those because it's only one out of three you need to figure out. I would say the Christmas party was a fib. Okay. And the, um, was it chestnuts you mentioned? Chestnuts, Di was the chestnuts roasting on an open fire and mine was the carol singers. Well, I have met Di, I have to say, or, or, or yes, definitely have met Di, um, and I can't think she'd ever tell a fib, to be honest with you, um, she's such a lovely person, um, but I don't know who likes chestnuts, to be honest with you, so I have to say that's a, that's, that's a, a, a fib as well. Oh, there, there is only one liar. And oh, there's only one liar. There's oh, only one lie, oh, yeah. Oh, right, in which case, then, yeah, uh, it's Paul. Paul with the Christmas party. I was going to say, actually, Paul was telling the truth. Oh, no. His favourite was the Christmas party. It's me that was lying with the carol singers. I don't do carol singing. I can't believe you, you wouldn't tell the truth. <laughs> I mean, especially in your job. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, well, that's the thing. I get my fibs out on the podcast, so I don't do it anywhere else. Yeah, quite, quite right, too. Quite right. Too. Oh, well, I'm pretty on that one, but um, that's interesting. Oh, well. Yeah, well. 
that was a good that was a good one to end on with the truth or lie feature so i think uh, what we'll start doing now is just a good place to start is just to chat to everybody really about your life so i say you and your you just said earlier that you're on your 42nd year of uh, being in the industry so what was it like for you coming into the industry what made you sort of go into the to the world of underwriting and reinsurance and everything else that you've been doing well, thank you for asking that question. It does seem an awful long time ago. I think 1979, which uh, what, goodness knows what's going on in 1979. But I'll be very honest with you. Um, I, I didn't wake up one morning and think, oh, underwriting, what a job. What a, what a great job to go into. Um, insurance, oh, I thought a little, little bit dull, isn't it? Yeah. And being uh, born and bred in Cheltenham in Gloucestershire, um, one of the, the big local employers, with the exception of uh, GCHQ, of course, the spy centre, so to speak, um, was a reinsurance company called Mercantile and General, um, M&G for short. Uh, yeah. They, as I say, they, they were a big employer. Um, people from my school, my secondary school, quite a few of them had gone there. Um, and it seemed a good place to start. Uh, no two ways about it. I think, uh, in, in fact, Eagle Star, which were then bought by Zurich, were actually in uh, in Cheltenham at the time as well. Um, but I ended up at uh, MNG, and when I got there, being um, uh, I think now now I'm of the age I can be honest with myself, uh, being quite a competitive person, <laughs> uh, certainly in sport. Um, the, if you wanted to get on in that company, uh, being a reinsurance company, of course. Uh, there were there were two jobs really where you were doing decent money, uh, and one was an underwriter, and the second was an actuary. Right. Um, actuarial was even, even though I've got a great love of numbers, I have to say, um, actuarial was sounded too much like hard work. It really did with all the exams that they have to do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Um, so I didn't go down that route, but I went, went down to the uh, the underwriting route, and. My first actual job within the underwriting department was actually claims. Right. Um, I actually started in claims, um, and only I was only there for about six months or so. But that that really was um, a time which was filled with great sadness. Not because um, of the job itself per se. Claims is absolutely fascinating, as we'll talk about later on. However, it was the time of the Falklands War. Right. And M&G um, had the, the Army Dependence Scheme. So we were dealing with um, claims that were coming on through that particular scheme. Um, and, of course, a lot of the claims were on young men, right. soldiers killed in the, in the Falklands and so on and so forth. So we were actually, how old was I at the time, 18, maybe 19? And we were dealing with death claims on people of exactly my age. Yeah. And it was harrowing to say the least that was really my first introduction into what insurance is all about i was gonna say that's an introduction and a half isn't it really uh, it, i mean it's it, that's pretty intense it certainly was and um i can assure you there were a few pints um drunk each evening after a day of having to deal with these claims yeah. um, just to kind of wind down if you like and get some poor sensibility back but so that was really my introduction um and then uh one reason or another, went off into underwriting, um, and I haven't really looked back since. Um, I, 42 years, it sounds an extraordinary length of time, 
but I don't think um, I've changed anything. And I think I'm a very lucky person to say 42 years doing not exactly the same job, but essentially the same. Um, and, and I've still got enough passion for it today than when I first started. Um, there's an awful lot to do. There's without any shadow of a doubt still. Um, we haven't got everything. The insurance industry certainly hasn't got everything right. Um, and that's one of the reasons, of course, why I agreed to come in, uh, on today. Talk to your good self. Obviously, I know some of the other industry figures very well in terms of you guys who are trying to change the world, if you like. Um, and, you know, it, it needs to be done. There's, there's no two ways about it. But back in the day, back in the day in terms of reinsurance, um, for those uh, who are not familiar with reinsurance, Catherine, I know you, I know you are very much yeah. so. Um, but these are insurance companies that insure insurers. Okay, so very typically um, in the UK, and it's, it, it's, it's developed this way for um, economic reasons, if you like, yeah. um, maximising company profits, et cetera, et cetera, um, that the insurer will take, typically on any type of, uh, of insurance product, life insurance, pure life insurance, critical illness or income protection, the insurer will take actually quite a small part of the risk um, some companies will take nothing, insurers will take nothing at all. And the, let's, say there's, let's say there's a case of a million pounds, uh, as an example. A company, insurer A, would take, let's say, 990, sorry, ins insurer A would take uh, 100,000 and the reinsurer would actually take 900,000. So yeah. the people who write um, the, the reinsurers really take much more of the far far more of the risk than the um, the insurer. Now, because of that, when um, I started in reinsurance as an underwriter, um, we saw a lot of cases, um, often with the medical evidence already uh, attached to the case. The insurer had gathered the medical evidence. And at that particular time, Sheldon's um, M&G, I should have also said that London had a, a, an underwriting team set up as well. Mm. Um, probably something like 60 or 70 underwriters. Um, right. And all we saw day in, day out were people with um, medical disorders. So many, many, many diabetics, people with coronary artery disease, stroke, multiple sclerosis, uh, those would be the, the, the primary ones, various lung, lung um, disorders, yeah. um, or very, very big cases where they, they needed the expertise um, at that time. To give you a, 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 another insight, I can't honestly remember the exact numbers, but we had something in the region of um, seven or eight chief medical officers who were consultants in their own right in different areas. So uh, in Cheltenham, we had a, a cardiologist, we had cancer specialist, an oncologist, uh, we had general physician, we had a lung specialist. And then in London, we had access to their uh, doctors as well. Some of, the most, some of the most famous that have been in the insurance market, in particular, a, a great, great guy called Dr. Brackenridge, who in insurance, he sadly passed away now, but... Um, in his day, was probably, well, not even probably, he was the best uh, doctor with an underwriting knowledge in the UK, if, if, not, if not globally. 
Um, if you ever get a chance to uh, to read some of his books, um, please do. Um, I always remember having the mission taken out of me something rotten, right? because people um, didn't believe, believe that I took home one of his books and had it under my pillow to read every night. Nice. Uh, um, but they are actually. I know it sounds a bit nerdish, but oh, I love it! I love it. I I do a book club, and I and uh, with my sister, we did like a secret Santa thing oh, where yeah. we had to um, all choose a book for for you know, basically we all put forward our favourite books, and the first thing she said was because obviously she knew there was someone in our book group that was going to get the book that I chose, and she just immediately said to me, "Do not give them Shakespeare." And I was just like, but I really like Shakespeare. She was like, nobody else likes Shakespeare. Do not give them Shakespeare. <laughs> and I was just like, okay. So no, I'm, I'm definitely going to be reading this book because I, I would love to learn more about the underwriting side and like the, the medical side of things. Because, you know, you know, as you know, we've spoken before, you know, I know quite a bit medically, yeah. um, but I don't know to the extent of a medical doctor on a lot of things but you know we do have quite a lot of, of knowledge but I find that find that really fascinating what you're saying as well about the insurer reinsurer side of things because especially like when we speak to clients and a lot of people who come to us are quite disheartened by the industry or even angry um, sure. towards the industry because they've been sure. told they can't get insurance and it's amazing how many times you'll say to them well look I know that you've had that decision but I know that's from them but you, you know there's another level there's what's known as reinsurers and I think people kind of hear that word and it's maybe a word that people have heard but they don't really understand what it means and it's a case of well actually so it's, it's not sort of it's not just this company but they're kind of held by the rules elsewhere as well and it's kind of like this massive complicated network of um yeah. of different decisions and and sometimes i actually think that people find that a bit easier sometimes and it can actually help them to stop being as angry. So angry towards one's particular company because they're just like oh right well actually so it, it isn't just them this is actually been a couple of people's decisions and um and it's some kind of set rules that have gone back you know for you know maybe you know, quite a lot of years with the yeah. medical information that's been used and um, so I think that's really fascinating when you were just saying that so so obviously you're doing all of these bits obviously and you know I mean obviously you're already saying from the very start you know you've been in claims you've been into the underwriting into the reinsurance I mean I suppose like a really interesting thing you're mentioning there about like the diabetes and the, the pulmonary conditions um, and strokes and things I mean what was because obviously I know, and we'll chat about now, kind of like what everything's looking at like now in regards to what's on offer for people. But how did the market kind of product kind of look like um, in those sort of like those original days for you as to what was available to people? Did Was life insurance as accessible as it is now or was it just in a sense different? Um, I, I, the world has got better um, as regards pure life insurance. There, there is no two ways about it. Um, with uh, the enhancement of medical knowledge, um, the, the, the world has moved on and there's a lot more people can be covered these days there, there is actually no two ways about it um, I don't know if you know but uh, when I first started uh, I know it's a long long time ago yeah. but um, there was something called a blood pressure pool okay. and also a diabetic pool so okay. all, the, all the cases that fitted into those categories and um, we actually go into a certain pool claims were paid out of that pool and from the premiums etc that okay. were paid into it but that was primarily those, those were created so that the reassurer i think i think it, by the way when i say reassurer i mean mg re in mm. this context um could get a handle on whether the underwriting is fit for purpose yeah and when i say underwriting fit for purpose what i mean by that is that the the right decisions were being made um, and losses were not being incurred. Yeah. 
okay, from because let's say we, we we put through a case. This is a black and white example, but let's say we put through a case at standard rates, but in fact the hundred cases that went in should have been rated at say two times ordinary rates. Yeah. Well, that's essentially what underwriters do. Of course, they try and they try and match on a on a on a case of a medical disorder. They try and give the uh, client a uh, decision which is commensurate with the premiums that are being paid. Yeah, I hope that makes sense. Does that does that make sense, Catherine? Yeah, yeah, no, actually, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I get into jargon, and um, I, I don't know I'm doing it. No, I, th I think, you know, it's all right. It's, it's just that it's that general thing, isn't it? I think we have to all understand, you know, because I, I appreciate that sometimes as advisors, we can get a bit frustrated with decisions or terms. But ultimately, the underwriters are there to assess the risk, to assign the risk, to protect, essentially protect, you know, the insurance company. So they are there to protect the client, but they also have to protect the insurance company, which is a business that has promised. It's already made a lot of promises to existing customers and they have to make sure the financial reserves all equal out, you know, and accommodate for the fact that, you know, there may be some people there who possibly are a higher risk and would maybe be more likely to pay claims, but then they have to make sure that there's enough money, like you say, in that kind of now collective pool to make sure that, you know, if there is suddenly lots of claims that they're able to honour those promises that they've given people. Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I don't think there is a, a chance of any insurer, protection insurer in this country going bust if they were if they were hammered by claims, but um, you know you can see from the recent um, reaction of the reinsurers and insurers to COVID um, that they are um, they want to understand that risk better yeah. um, before they open up the market again uh, as, as it was before. So yeah. you're absolutely right, and thank you. You've explained it far far better than we did. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I was, I was saying really was that there was this pool, so, so hypertension, raised blood pressure, was a risk that was considered, you know, back in 1979, it was considered to be, oh, you know, not quite sure about this, not quite sure about that, hence why they put they, they, they formed a pool. Yeah. But now, because hypertension is, is stocking trade, um, and yeah. uh, generally, as long as you're well controlled, et cetera, et cetera, you will know from your your own um, work that um, most people can get standard rates certainly for life insurance now but that that's how a lot of these um getting data data is so so important um and getting that data allows underwriters to open up the um on various disorders medical disorders that are out there and provide more cover uh, you know uh, I would say back in 1979, um, income protection was, was people were worried. People at, um, in for reinsurance company, reinsurance company, um, they were they were a bit worried about income protection because they didn't know whether it made money or not. Is the, yeah. is this is really the bottom line? I'm talking a very very long time ago now, of course. Um, but so when they once they gathered enough data. Um, real life experience from their clients who are insurance companies of course they realized that with a few tweaks here and there um, some sharper pricing depending on the deferred period etc yeah better claims handling far far better claims handling rehab services etc uh, etc et then it, it, it was a product with a design that was sustainable at the end of yeah. the day we all know from um, you know it, 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 
people should buy. <laughs> yes. An awful lot more. I would I would say to you that my first insurance product was an income protection policy. Right. It wasn't a critical critical I'll go on to critical illness in a minute, but it wasn't critical illness. Now, one of the reasons why critical illness um, it actually wasn't around in nineteen seventy-nine in this country yeah. country. So moving on, um, I was very lucky to uh, work with a guy called Dave Grimshaw, uh, an actuary. Yeah. Uh, won't hold it against him, but an actuary. Um, and he was, a, he was a fantastic teacher. Um, still is. He's still, still in the industry. Um, and it, it was a great insight for me to see him work through the development of the initial plans. Obviously, South Africa was, was around still in those days, and they, they were... Yeah country with Marius Barnard etc um, but to see him develop the product and the pricing for the product to understand the pricing of a product actually allows the underwriter um, far more flexibility in how he underwrites that product if you understand it and in those days of course there are only five or six disorders um, I know the marketplace is um, uh, has moved back a little bit to, yes. to, um, to a short number of illnesses covered, um, and also AIG's plan, which was, um, which was, to my mind, a, a great step forward. Yeah. Um, but understanding the pricing really gives an underwriter um, so much more knowledge, that, and that knowledge allows them to be more flexible. When I was going to say, I think, sorry, I was going to say, I think one of the things that I'd find really interesting there, because obviously I know a bit about it, but not lots. And I imagine there's a lot of advisors that'd be the same as me. So can you sort of like explain that interconnection in a sense of what underwriters and actuaries, you know, so like a very brief thing, right? This is what an underwriter does. This is what an actuary does. And this is how they complement each other in that kind of a sense. I think that'd be really interesting to hear. Okay. Well, the, the, the fundamental level, um, when you are creating a price for a risk, um, you'll take a base, I'll talk life only, life, um, life insurance only, mortality. Um, the uh, actuary will consult numerous um, data uh, models and create a premium. Now, a premium, which I'm sure you know, is made up of um, a, a, a few factors. The, the biggest, uh, depending on the age of the individual, is going to be the mortality, the chance yeah. of somebody dying um, or making a claim, if it's one of the others. On top of that, they will um, put expenses. So that's the costs of, um, of running the business, of paying commission, etc., yeah. um, etc. Et um, and they'll also add a margin, a profit margin. Now, all of those three things will um, it, it will come on to the, the, the vision of the of the actuary. Underwriters specifically look at um, the mortality risk, the chances of making a claim, and there's enough data on on mortality um, out there. Um, and certainly, there was in 1979. Mm. Um, on basic mortality, how, how long you expect somebody to live, da 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 da. Um, but, and, and a decent enough idea how um, underwriting impacts that. In other words, how, how an underwriter, whether they accept a risk or standard rates, 
um, unfortunately, in some instances, decline a risk or, or add a, a rating. Mm. And and actually, we'll take that mortality risk and consult with an underwriter to see whether that is reasonable or not. Yeah. So essentially, the actuary will come up with a price made of three things. The biggest mortality, generally, uh, it said depending on age, and then the underwriter will come along, and it's, it's almost like rubber stamp. But in fact, the, re- the, the, the reality is, um, it, it's it's more of a, me- a, a meeting of minds, if you want. Yeah. Okay. Um, does, does that help? Yeah, yeah, it does. I think yeah. you know, it's 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 really important to understand that because you know, I think you know, as say as an as an advisor, you kind of see these different things sorry playing about, and you know, we all know that sorry, I think like underwriters make decisions, actuaries. I want to say play with numbers, but I know they do a lot more than that. I think that's... <laughs> I'm sorry to any actuary who's yeah. listening. <laughs> there's, there's, different of, there's, there's different types of actuary as well, of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear how, how, they, how that works together because, you know, we, we know that they are such an entwined kind of position in many ways, but that they yeah. are separate. So it's, that's really, really helpful. Thank you. Okay. No, no, that's all right. Um, as I say, we, we got that kind of... Um, Rose from when I was talking about uh, critical illness, and yes. yeah, I was I was lucky enough to be around when it really got going in this country, and also um, as I say, talking to Dave, uh, Dave Grimshaw about um, and, and, and about the development of that product, if yeah. you like. Um, and also, let's be honest, I, I talked about income protection a little bit earlier. Also, seeing um, or being involved with development of that product as well. Yeah. Um, so. As a reinsurer, I was a very, very lucky man, to be perfectly honest, to um, to be part of and of, of that type of product development and the interaction between the underwriters um, and, and the actuaries in particular. And also, I shouldn't forget here, of course, the claims people. Yes. Who, um, really, in, in those days, I don't think we utilised them enough in terms of them giving us feedback on the product. And how difficult it was in certain circumstances for them to do their job. Yeah, I would give you some great examples now. You know, if you, if you went into an insurance company and you sat with their team, uh, claims team, and you asked, "What are the biggest challenges you've got?" And some of the biggest challenges are trying to assess TPD claims. Yes, very difficult. I was going to say, imagine I've. I've heard some very uh, we were involved in actually in a in a, a, a tpd claim that i believe yeah. it, it it took a long time and um and, and a lot of it, it had to go very very high <laughs> in um in the insurer for us to be able to to get that sorted for the client but i, I imagine it is extremely extremely difficult but it's it, yeah it's it, it, it does feel like a very very um difficult claim definition to actually have on a policy and I, I know obviously now you can pretty much you can choose with some insurers if you want it on or not and there's quite kind of a debate as to whether or not to actually include it sometimes it's um it's a bit tricky one yes i, I mean I, I i completely agree with you and it certainly it certainly is tricky i remember um sitting on a um a reinsurers uh one of their seminars and sitting on the panel and um you know i i I said, and I don't think um, I'm very happy to share it, that, that TPD is broken. Mm. It, is, it is a very difficult product to um, to claim on. Yeah. 
um, and it causes all types of issues at claim. It, it's actually the time you don't want issues to be caused. <laughs> yeah, of course. Somebody, somebody is in a difficult position. As, you know, the poor old claimant is, um, is expecting a payout. And the, the other one, um, so what I'm really trying to say there is with TPD, maybe with a bit of forethought, we could have thought of doing that in a different way. That's what I'm trying yeah. to say. Um, and the claims people were really, were really the people that had the, um, the short straw on. on yes. That. The other one um, is um, without any any shadow of doubt is terminal illness. Uh, yeah. Incredibly, uh, it can be incredibly difficult um, to, uh, to 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 handle those types of claim. Um, we were talking earlier about the the stress on the actual claims team at an insurer. Yeah. Um, that is created from uh, from some of the things that they have to do or go through um, and, and manage uh, clients' expectations. So those are things I, I you know I, I wonder if we've really got quite right in the industry. I think it was Katia at Guardian um, wrote a good piece the other week about um, terminal illness, and yes. uh, I, I have to say I completely agree with her on, on that. It's it's not a benefit that really I don't think really helps, but. There we go. Do you have a view on that, Catherine? Because I mean, you're, you're at the yeah. The, it's the, a very, very difficult one. Um, so I mean, the main one that stood out for me in regards to terminal illness, um, recently, and it is something that she's talked about before. So I'm not breaking any confidences in this. But uh, Lindsay, who works with us, unfortunately oh, right. lost her mum to, um, to a long battle with cancer, um, in February, um, just before everything happened with COVID, um, and they had tried to claim on the terminal illness side of the policy. Um, and they were in a sort of like a, um, in, in a very difficult mindset in the sense if they put the claim forward, but they also, her mum was very much of the mindset. She said, I don't want to know if I'm terminally ill. And there was that really yeah. difficult um a difficult position, a difficult position for the, the claims assessor, obviously the insurer, and difficult for, for Lindsay and her mum and dad because her mum didn't want to know if she was terminal, but she didn't want to have to face that, even though it was something, she, she just didn't want to have it kind of set in stone. Yeah. Yeah. And But at the same point, if there was a potential that they could pay off the mortgage, um, then they absolutely want to do that as well. And I know that it was it was quite hard for them because they got a decision letter back at the time because it, it was turned down for the terminal illness claim last year. Yeah. Um, and the, the, it came back as a decline. And, and the letter, um, I haven't seen the letter, but it, the, the gist of the letter was um, that, you know, basically you were terminally ill, but now that you've started a new medication, you're probably not anymore. So, yeah. yay. Um, and, you know, that was a, you know, that was, I know that was very, very hard for Lindsay's mum. And, and, and I, I can't imagine how that would have been, I, I can't imagine how that could have been easy for the claims handler either. Um, and, and I can't imagine how they could have worded it in a way that was better. I say, I haven't seen the letter, so I don't know if it was okay or not the way it was worded. But, you know, just you know, a very, very, you know, it's almost as if in some ways, you know, the claims team, you know, you kind of think, well, somehow they probably need to have some kind of, you know, vulnerable client training, but then also probably given the opportunity to maybe even have some kind of on-hound um, counselling for themselves as well, just to be able to to process what they're having to to say to people. Because yeah, I, I, I can imagine that the, the amount of range of feedback and responses they must get when they give those decisions out from when things aren't a claim isn't going ahead um then it must be absolutely horrendous yeah it was very nicely put actually thank you um you, you taking the words out of my mouth 
In fact, he's far more eloquent than I am. Directing <laughs> 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 those words, um, I, I completely agree with you. Um, it's it's um, it, very difficult area, and uh, it's it's an interesting one on why insurance companies don't actually provide those types of uh, those types of help and support for their claims assessors, really. Um, but there we go. You know, it, it's, it's certainly one that I would like to see changed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I suppose one thing that could be said is that for anybody who's in, obviously, a claims assessor in an insurer, is if, if you check what group insurance is available, you may have some of the value-added services and the counselling may be a part of that. So it may not be something that you've initially thought of or thought, oh, yeah, they're not giving me that. But it may actually be, in a sense, around, in, a, in a background system, it may be available. Um, but it, it should really be something, I think, that should be should be there for for the claims handlers you know for the people who are actually speaking with people the the most no matter what that, that the person who's claiming is is if whether or not it's a successful claim or not for them they're experiencing something extremely traumatic and um and you know and obviously that claims assessor is a person who's the the <laughs> You know, it's they're the they're the only person they're probably going to be getting a chance to to kind of vent about yeah. whether or not things are, are going okay or not. But um, I know you said as well that your wife's a, a claims assessor, and so it must be something that you're, you're you're in a sense you're quite familiar with as to what you know the things that she has to face. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, when I was uh, chief underwriter at Agon, um, I, I looked after the claims team as well, um, and um, would spend some time doing um, those types of call face. So I would sit down and, and listen to the calls with the client, uh, with the clients and so on and so forth, and actually get, get physically involved with them, um, with uh, talking to clients and so on and so forth. Um, it, it is very, very difficult. And um, I have to take my, my hat off to all of the claims teams in the UK for the job that they do, because 99 times out of 100, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a difficult one. There's no, there's no two ways about it. Um, it's not in the same league as new business underwriting, where uh, you know you get you can get pressures from IFAs and so on and so forth. Yeah. But um, it's it's nowhere near as uh, as, as difficult. But then we, oh, so we're talking now about sorry, Catherine, were you going to make a? No, I was just yeah, I was just going to say the other thing is is just start thinking about it, thinking of ourselves as well as being a small and a sense small IFA. You know, it's you know. <laughs> If you have, if someone has used an advisor, you know, the potentially the advisor could, protect, you know, maybe that person who is receiving that as well. So I think it's important to potentially recognise, you know, if, if advisors don't have specific claims teams, claim supports teams in their um, advisory firm, that it could be the advisor themselves or one of the admin team that is having it. So for, for people assisting, you know, obviously we're saying that, you know, it's something where claims assessors need support. It could also be as well as if you do have people in your organisation who are dedicated to doing the claims or if it's yourself as yeah. an advisor as well yeah. that to, to just be very conscious that you know sometimes you know if things haven't gone right off if you've had that experience before where something's not gone right for the client in regards to the claim is making sure that you're okay yourself afterwards because I think yeah. as well as advisors you, you know you do become a lot of us become quite connected to our clients and yeah. we become yeah. friends in some ways and and if the claim isn't successful you can kind of feel as if well have I let them down and then you know about you know their child or their couple of children you know that you know they usually do sports on this day and you can't ring on that day because that's when you know grandma's coming around for playing and they can't be disrupted and things and yeah. um, and yeah. it'd be really hard because you get emotionally invested and I imagine a lot of claims assessors can get quite emotionally invested too so I, th I think for all of us it's it's probably just that 
yeah. that awareness, you know, but probably something across the industry, some kind of extra awareness. I know we talk about there's a big thing at the moment for vulnerable client um, policies and awareness um, strategies, which you know, I've, I've been involved in a few different ones. Um, but I think it's, you know, part of that whenever I'm doing those things, as I always say, we talk about vulnerable clients, but we must talk as well yeah. about the people who are being engaged. So obviously, I come a lot from the advisor point of view to say, well, if an advisor, you know, we're saying pre-sales underwriting in some ways, depending on the stuff an advisor could be hearing from somebody, that may not all necessarily get translated to the insurer because obviously not always everything goes to the insurer. But that doesn't mean that that person hasn't heard that and then possibly needs support because they've heard something that could be quite triggering for themselves or, you know, that it's just been something that's quite intense. And sometimes people can get very emotional when they're having to chat through past experiences. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, um, I agree. I agree. It's um, it, certainly um, with my IFA hat on, uh, I've done um, hundreds of uh, tele interviews. So that's going yeah. to be a proposal form effectively over the telephone. And uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I suppose I'm a little bit hardened um, yeah. because of what I've done, been doing for the last 40 odd years. But some of the, you know, you can hear the client's voice break sometimes when they tell you about something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, in other words, if I put myself in your position or your team's, or your members of your team's position, who maybe aren't quite as hard nosed yes. as I am these days, um, it, it, it must be horrible. And, um, it go. is. You it, know. it is. I think some of my team are a bit, a bit, a bit harder than me, and they're they're able to cope <laughs> with it. I'm I'm just I'm the one that ends up getting off the call and then going through a bit of a spiral of like, oh no, what have that person faced? And then I'll give me a hug, I'll get a cup of tea, and then I'll carry on again. Yeah. Um, but you know, we, we all react in different ways. But you know, that's that's it for me. It's fine. I've got Alan there with me. Um, who's obviously for anyone who's listening and doesn't know, Alan's my husband, and we work together. Um, you know, and um, we can just. And so he gives me a hug and I have a cup of tea, but not everyone's got that. And at the moment as well, there's, you know, a lot of us have been working from home for so long. Some of us from, you know, eight months or so on our own, that's quite isolating. And if you are hearing difficult stories, you need to make sure, you know, as I say, you know, as, as, as a company owner, you know, it's, it's our duty to make sure that the team's okay and that things aren't getting too much when they're listening to some of these things. But um, I suppose it'd be really good as well to talk about, you know, we've, we've talked about how things were when it started for, for you and sort of like what was available and um, in regards to obviously the, the underwriting, the claims, the, the, when we talk about the reinsurers. And, and now obviously you are a consultant. I suppose it'd be really good to hear about what you are doing now and also how the market looks to you now and sort of like probably the things that you've seen that have developed which are incredible obviously we're going to talk about big things that have happened from what you've said critical illness income protection are massive things that have happened yeah. um, and you know there are definitely you know from, from my knowledge as well there are some health conditions where now the covers available where it definitely used to be even 10 years or so ago it used to be very very difficult to get or impossible to um, so it'd be really good to hear your take on the market now and maybe what you'd like to, to see coming forward as we as we go forward into 2021 okay um well two parts to this the first bit is what am i doing now and i i work with uh, actively work with um as at today's date a couple of ifas um primarily working on the high net worth cases um but certainly um certainly with one of them um helping out where i can on cases that have got have grown to a halt because of an underwriting or underwriting related matter so i help to um, unravel some of the knots that go on and um, and get cover for a, a particular client um 
you know yourself that, that uh, some of the decisions that are made in the market um, are, in my opinion, rather odd, mm. um, and they can differ um, between insurers. And, you know, you know this yourself, but it's never, it never ceases to amaze me when you can get a decline from one insurer and a standard rate from another. Um, it's 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 quite remarkable, really. Um, and in, in the days now of very automated underwriting manuals, so an, an underwriter will base their decision on a from a manual, a guide, in other words, to whatever the loading would be or exclusion or whatever. Um, it, it never ceases to amaze me, but it can not necessarily uh, decline to standard or normal terms. That's relatively rare, but big loadings, you know, three times the normal rate down to one and a half times the normal rate, um, not uncommon at all. Not no. uncommon. And you're, you're absolutely right. Different um, different sets of rules apply, but it's rare that the um, the spectrum that type of spectrum comes from an underwriting manual. There's yeah. not an awful lot of human intervention into that one reason or another. And so, to be fair, um, all the insurers have doctors working for them. And sometimes doctors uh, have their own personal views on, on types of risk. Yeah. And that can um, sometimes account for some of the, um, the, the, the wide range of decisions that are seen. So it's not always the underwriter. Um, sometimes the doctors that, that, that advise them on the cases that are... You don't see every day sometimes. Yes. Um, so that's what I've done. I've uh, have worked um, directly with um, a couple of the very high net worth brokers in the marketplace over the last few years. So I've been working in IFA land um, as well. Um, but one of the one of the interesting areas I work in is expert witness work. Okay. And uh, it's me always. Um, on claims, disputed claims, yeah. um, and uh, it's quite remarkable how often, um, with some inside knowledge, what I mean by that is obviously 40 odd years of knowing how the market works, um, you, you can get claims paid, even though they're, they're, they've gone to the legal, you know, so that they, they might have failed at the, um, the ombudsman. Yeah. Uh, one of the people that works for the uh, the ombudsman, and they've gone to a lawyer to try and get pushed through the claim. And um, you know, certainly, I've been lucky enough to be involved in a few that we have turned around completely. Oh, amazing! One of the um, areas that um, where it seems to break down with insurance companies is that if 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 there, if there is a claim and there's been a misrepresentation of the of, of what the client has said. Yeah. Um, then, generally, insurers will ask their new business. So the claims team will ask the insurers what they would have done if they had known the information yeah. come out of claim. Um, and it, it seems again, I believe that's a common practice. It certainly was the practice at Aegon when I was there, but that was a while ago now. Um, Unfortunately, what seems to happen is that if a claims person asks an underwriter, the underwriter knows that that person, that, that what they're looking at turned out to be a claim, yeah. they will then be a, go over the top, they'll be harsh. Right. Um, and they, they, it, 
but it, I think it's almost natural to do that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, th I think that would be, I think it'd be, you'd have to specifically stop, you know, and so think, right, let's not look at the end result of what's happened here and Absolutely. let's go to, this is a brand new person. Absolutely. And um, it's, it doesn't happen in every case. There's no, there's no two ways about that, but it can happen. And it just, it, it's something that sticks out in the expert witness work I've done. Right. And then the will come back and you think, well, hold on, really? You, would you have really done that? If, if this had been a new business case or sat on your, you know, on your laptop yeah. or whatever. And um, as I say, it's, it's, it's a very interesting area and um, expert witness work uh, and, and very rewarding when you can get somebody um, a claim paid. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I always say, even though I'm kind of head, have been heavily involved in high net worth uh, cases, so, you know, millions and millions of pounds worth, you know, I, I never ever forget that a hundred thousand pounds is an awful lot to somebody. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Fifty thousand is an awful lot to somebody. Ten thousand could be, you know, and it's always worth what fighting for. And it's also worth underwriters as well. You know, uh, I have heard the comment in my time and say, "Oh, it's only ten thousand pounds. Not going to bother with this one." Mm. Fifty thousand. If it was, if it was fifty million then I can absolutely assure you that they do everything they possibly could to get the case through. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm not, it's a rare occurrence, I have to say, um, that underwriters think like that, but I have seen it in my time. And uh, I think underwriting managers or, or the powers that be just need to look at, to look, uh, look at that as well. Um, I like say, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure there will be that you know I think as with anything isn't it I think with all of us you know there's going to be some underwriters who maybe think like that um but then there's going to be some advisors who may be a wall for just getting like the the highest amount of commission rather than you know sort of doing the sorry the, what's necessarily best you know in some ways I think it's like you say it's, it's all always like the management control isn't it just to make sure that everybody's working as as best as they can be and and for the for the absolute benefit for the client we are sort of like coming towards the end of the podcast. Is there anything else that you would like to, to sort of like chat to, to people about and mention? Um, I don't think anything, anything that's mind-blowing particularly. I'll, I'll just give you a little bit of a, a story um, I always remember. Um, I think you and I, Catherine, have talked about medical evidence. Yes. Uh, oh, medical evidence, yeah. Um, <laughs> you can hear me already. <laughs> oh, medical evidence. And, um, I'll, I'll just kind of leave you with the... Uh, when I, was, uh, when I was in my reinsurance days, um, a, a large case, uh, I, don't, I can't remember the sums at all, but it would have been millions, um, had been put, uh, touted around the market. Um, so it, 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 got, it ended up with six GPRs being obtained, one each by each of the insurers that wanted to win this case. Right. If you looked at the first one and you looked at the last one, you wouldn't have thought it was the same person. Right. Um, because the GP, we would think, possibly just got completely bored by the time he the sixth one, so he hardly put anything on it. I was, say, I was just imagining something magically fantastic in the in the last one, just uh, like we usually see, which is you know something along the lines of, "Oh, this person has epilepsy," and then you go back to the client and go, "I've never had epilepsy." Yeah. Then you have to get the client records corrected, and then there's a whole, yeah. whole bunch of other stuff going on there. But I, I imagine the the show that got the sixth GPR was. Um, I don't know if they'd be happy or unhappy that they didn't get all the information. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, it's a, there, hangs, there hangs the tail. It's it's, a, it's an interesting one when 
course, the reinsurer has to say, well, actually, I've got some other data on this person and it's completely different, you know. Yeah. It, um, but yes, I mean, my, my medical records um, are very strange, I have to say. Um, but, you know, if, if we go back and understand, I can understand why some medical records are um, uh, incorrect because they also, you know, most of them, the old Lloyd uh, George Brown envelopes, I don't know if you were, have you ever seen those? No, I haven't. Oh, goodness gracious. I am showing my age now. <laughs> they, uh, basically, you had all your records handwritten, generally, certainly GP, um, in a big brown envelope. And right. the, the, you know, the, the, the surgery nurse would um, uh, bring them out uh, every time you went in. Right. And uh, anyway, cut a long story short, all of those, at, at some stage, it was a few years ago now, it has to be said, had to be... All of that paper, hand, handwritten material had to be put manually onto a computer. Wow. Now, I've got a barrel of laughs with my GP records because mine have got 300 pages. Well, they, they, <laughs> <laughs> there, you, there you go. And, you know, to an extent, for a start, the people who are transcribing it are human. Yeah, they can they make the odd error. Okay. Um, and two, you know, I've. 40 odd years, I'm used to it now, but a lot of people could not read doctor's handwriting. Oh, it is atrocious, isn't it? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, so if you've got, if you're trying to transcribe something and you can't read it onto a, you know, onto a new record, patient record, um, it's not the easiest thing to do in the world in the first place. So that, you know, it's one of the reasons why data is not fantastic on yeah. some areas. If you have a private GP and you have a, uh, an NHS, NHS GP, um, you, you know, you have consultants who should, best practice, to update the GP with whatever the consultant's seen the individual for, but then always. Yeah. Um, and, you, you, you know, it, it is, I would safely say, it's the bane of an underwriter's life, obtaining medical evidence. Um, I was going to say, I did actually get a thank you note when I sent mine in. And then I say 300 pages, I got, <laughs> I got an email back <laughs> saying... You could read the sarcasm in the email. It was sort of good. It was good in a, a good laugh kind of a way, but it was a case of yeah, thanks. Um, and I was like, well, I'm not taking any risks. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's um, yeah. It's, it's uh, I, th I think the, the world of an underwriter and claims person for that matter is, is never quite as simple as it sounds. Let me put it that way. Just with the basic evidence, which is the, yes. the, the key if you're going to make a decision on somebody's um, premium. Um, when it's just not there, or there are gaps in it, or it, it looks as though the, the person hasn't been followed up yeah. on something which is important, and you know they probably have been, but it's just not in their records. Um, and that again might might um, be why someone writing decisions look distinctly odd, as you yeah. you know as you mentioned before with the, with the case. So but the medical evidence side is um is is always fraught with. with Challenges it has to be said, and probably I would I would leave you with that. Apart from saying thank you very much for having me on, um, and uh, I, I genuinely believe anybody who wants to be an underwriter out there <laughs> listening, it's a fantastic career and very very rewarding. And if you think of all the, um, the, the the improvements in medical evidence, sorry, not medical evidence, what am I talking about? Yeah, uh, medical advances. And you mentioned um, cancer. Um, early yes. Um, and you have to keep on top of that, as well as 
political risks, overseas travel, the latest statistics on people falling off Mount Everest, whoever wants to, you know, taking out cover just before they go, um, racing car drivers, um, you know, it, it's it's not just life or disability, but all other types of uh, risks involved that an underwriter can, um, to, can look at. It's I have thoroughly enjoyed my, my 41 years to date and, and the, 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 the well into my 42nd year now and I would completely recommend it to anybody but underwriters only have a job because there are IFAs at other points of distribution out there selling policies and getting out there like, like you and Alan do so yeah. you know, thank you for, you for your job as well no. what will you do in your job too no, thank you. I was going to say, I'm one of those people though, where I'd love to do everything. So it's like absolutely <laughs> fascinating in the sense of I'm like, well, I want to be an underwriter as well. As, and then I'm like, I want to be an actuary and I'll just keep going around saying I want to do this, I want to do that. But um, I know that our training that we do at, at Cura isn't um, massively dissimilar to that of like, you know, training underwriters. So, sure. it's, um, sure. so it's, it's quite interesting, but I don't know if it's the same for, for underwriters that is for, for, for like some of the members of my team and that, but um, because we know obviously so many things that can, signs and symptoms of things that can lead to other things, you do end up kind of doing like a bit of, you kind of, we're all kind of diagnosing ourselves with things in the office. Like I've started thinking this, can you remember that client the other week where they had this symptom yeah. and then it ended up being this and we got, right, you're going to have to get yourself checked. You know, <laughs> Self-diagnose each other. I mean, I'm t I completely actually understand that, and I, I know two trainee underwriters, yeah, um, who actually got so stressed with that exact situation that actually left underwriting. Oh wow! Completely. Oh. And you know, the, these guys were graduates. One's a, uh, had a law degree, and I can't remember the other one. Um, you know, but yeah, they just got too involved and stuff. Started self-diagnosing. And they had yeah. to. They, they went. They, they left. End of story. Oh. Really. So yeah, um, you know, it, it can be a challenge. Absolutely, <laughs> it can be. About it. So yeah. Well fantastic thank you thank you so so much for coming on matt and i hope that uh, i can maybe get you back on future episodes and we can chat stuff like it more in depthly about possibly some different risks like you say it's not just life it's not just health it's, there's lots of other things too um so um obviously this is going to be as say the, the last episode for 2020 and the last episode of season two um i hope that everyone listening um, will come back and and for season three we've got some um, exciting things um coming up a little slight change to the format of the way we're doing things so i hope that you stick with us and enjoy that um, but if you have been listening and it is part of your work that you are working possibly in the insurance or underwriting side of things or actually we've, we've gone around all the houses today um, then please do feel free to go onto the website which is www.practical-protection.co.uk where you can claim a CPD certificate so um, so again thank you so much Matt and I hope that you have a lovely Christmas and New Year. Thank you very much for having me again. And um, yeah, to you and Alan and all the uh, guys listening, um, Merry Christmas and uh, look forward to speaking to you again next year. Thank you. Bye. Bye.